So we're in this series called See What God Sees. And my prayer is that all of us will see in others what God sees in others. Uh, Often it's relatively easy for us to consider what God sees in us, but sometimes it's really hard to see what God sees in other people, right? And so our our goal has been uh, to recognize that, man, everybody, everybody is made in the image of God. And that's where we started last week, Genesis 1, right, verses 26 and 27. Uh, God made human beings in His own image. God created them, male and female. In the image of God, He created them. And we just want to acknowledge that all seven and a half billion people in the world have the image of God in them, and that that is a good thing. Today we're going to take just a a different approach uh, about um, kind of the why question. Why is it that if that's true, we all struggle, I know I do, why is it that we all struggle with seeing the image of God in other people? Why is it that we kind of pause and wonder, could that possibly be true? Could it be real that God actually is in everybody and God has an image imprinted on everybody? I ran across a video that some of you saw this week because I posted it socially. When I looked at it, I literally just laughed out loud because it spoke volumes without saying a single word. It's, a, it's a, a video of two dogs who much like children can teach us much, right? We often learn from children and dogs about how to be good people. <laughs> and so I wanna just invite you to watch this 30 second video and I'm gonna invite you afterwards to reflect with me on what is the big idea or the big lesson we can learn from these two dogs. Watch as they teach us well. Isn't that funny? I mean, I literally laughed out loud the first time I watched it, and I'm, I'm at the same time that I'm laughing, I'm thinking, that is a powerful life lesson, powerful. For you, what is the lesson from this? What would you say? I say that much like children, that we can learn how to treat one another when there aren't gates, screens, barriers, walls between us. Wasn't it fascinating how when that gate opened, they were like, oh, how do you do? I'm glad to meet you. I'm glad you're here. But when the gate closed again, they were like, oh my gosh, I don't like you. I don't see you and I don't fully understand you. So I'm going to be all after you, right? I mean, it is a fascinating study on the human condition, even though it's dogs, right? I love that image. It's very powerful. And it gets at the the root of why it is we struggle in our own world today with seeing the image of God in everybody. Because every last one of us, myself included, has put up a barrier. Sometimes it's on a screen. Sometimes it's in our neighborhoods. Sometimes it's in communities that we live. But we all kind of create these barriers. And when we do, we cannot see the full image of God in everybody that's before us. And so that's our challenge. And it begs the further question then, golly, how do we get here? (laughs) 
How did we arrive at this stage believing and trusting that Scripture says everybody's created in the image of God and yet also recognizing that we all struggle with seeing the image of God in everybody else, right? How did we get here? Well, the book of Genesis, again, we turn to because the book of Genesis gives us powerful imagery and understandings of why we are the way we are. You know, Genesis, I'm sure you know, of course, means beginnings. It sort of describes how we got to be the way we are today, right? So last week we know and we learned that we're made in the image of God, and this week we're going to turn just a couple of chapters later, very early in the story, about why it is we create these barriers and how it is that they keep us from seeing the full image of God. So Genesis chapter 4, some of you may know this story. It's the story of Cain and Abel, and it begins to tell us why it is we create barriers and how it is hopefully we can overcome those barriers. Listen now for God's Word. Now, the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, He had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the grave. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it no longer will yield to you its strength, for you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer to the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod in the Hebrew means wandering. So Cain became a wanderer. Outside, we're told, of the presence of the Lord. Isn't that an amazing story? And so if you're hearing that story for the very first time, I'm I'm, I'm curious how you begin to sort of uh, interface with it, what it means for you. And even for those of us who may have heard it many times, it it has this great sense of, of pure understanding of what it means to both be made in the image of God and lose sight of what that looks like and how we encounter it. I'm fascinated by the very essence that Cain and Abel are brothers. And I begin to reflect on this simple truth. Sibling rivalry. <laughs> Sibling rivalry is a perennial problem, isn't it? I mean, ever, whenever you go to the um, 
nursery when you go to get annuals or perennials? I always struggle. What, what's the difference? What's the difference between annuals and perennials? You remember? And perennials are those things that keep coming back, right? I love those because I don't have to replant all the time, right? So I love perennials. And what it reminds me is of a, a, a sibling rivalry is this perennial ongoing issue. How many of us have siblings in the room? Yeah? Keep your hands up. How many of you with those siblings had at least one time in your life a little bit of a rivalry, a little bit of a problem, a little bit of an art? Yep. Keep your hand up. Yep. 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 How many of those who still have their hand up maybe had, I don't know, five or 10 or 20 of those kinds of arguments, right? Yeah, thank you very much. It is a perennial issue, right? And Cain and Abel are facing this perennial problem that they have this ongoing struggle. I remember well, I'm one of three boys and man, I'm the youngest and they always, of course, picked on me and then I always tried to retaliate, right? There was always this ongoing thing. And even to this day, I, I'm at 56, my older brothers are at 60 and God awful old, I don't remember his age, but I had this argument with my middle brother one time, years ago. I mean, I must have been 10 and he must have been 13. And uh, there was in the driveway as we're arguing, an old-fashioned carjack, right? The stem and the plate that is the stand right for it. And he gets so mad at me, he takes that thing and he swings it at me. And the plate, the stand comes off and just comes right at me. And had I not been adept... I might not have hair today. Oh, that didn't work, did it? I mean, it just came right at me. It just came right at me. And I was shocked when I realized, I'm sure my brother was too. I'm sure he was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't, you know. But sibling rivalry is real, isn't it? We all face it. We all have it in some form or fashion. And here's what's also true. Cain and Abel are not only sort of literal brothers, but if you reflect on the story, they're like one of only four people in the world, right? There's mom and dad, Adam and Eve, and there's Cain and Abel. And so not only do they represent this sibling rivalry, which many of us can resonate with, but they also represent humanity. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're at each other's throats. We sometimes look at each other just the way Cain looked at Abel, and we neglect to see the image of God in the other person. And we therefore cause, or at least attempt to cause, harm. And this sense in which Cain and Abel represents all of us is so very important because it helps remind us that every once in a while we neglect to see the image of God in even those who are close to us. And certainly it could therefore be true that we neglect to see the image of God in others who are even distanced from us, right? It is a powerful image. There's, an all, there's another big truth in this story that we all need to capture. This is the first time in Scripture that sin is identified. It's not the first time sin appears, mind you, but it's the first time sin uh, is identified. Remember it said sin is lurking at the door, lurking. Can you feel it? Can you sense it? There's sin just kind of waiting to creep in. And there's sin right there before us. And it's identified in both behavior and in thought. And that will become important for us. Now, sin began in the garden, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've got access to all the trees in the garden except one. And God says, golly, I want you to stay away from the fruit of the knowledge of the difference between good and evil. You can have everything else you want. And Adam and Eve think better of themselves, right? I know we're not supposed to have that, God, but man, that looks good. 
And I think I'd like to have that. And I think it would taste really good. And pride, not named, but lived, enters the world. And so pride is literally, I say, sort of foundational into, in, into our sinful nature. And pride becomes sort of the basis upon which many other sins begin to develop, right? And then we get to Cain and Abel just a couple of short chapters later, just one generation later, and it's labeled, it's identified, sin is lurking at the door. And the sin of Cain is anger, but anger in and of itself is not a sin. I mean, Jesus had anger, right? Anger is not the problem. It's the misuse of that anger. It's the, it's the misrepresentation of that anger. It's the, it's the overkill, if you will, of that anger, which, of course, is what Cain does. Sin is an interesting thing. When all is said and done, sin simply means I've missed the mark. I've missed God's mark. I've missed God's desire. I've missed the way God intended for us to be, right? And in some ways, isn't that like... I can't see the mark. I can't see the image of God in all people. I can't quite reach what God is desiring for me and for others. And that's what happened for Cain is that anger turned to rage and that rage caused him to miss the mark of God's image on his brother Abel. And he rises up and takes his life because he does not see in his own flesh and blood God's image. And it reminds us that we need to deal and address our own sins and that we've got to do something about that. And I love the way John in one of his letters helps us to identify this. He says it this way in the fourth chapter of the first letter. He says, if anyone boasts, I love God and goes right on hating his brother and his sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God that he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Love God includes loving people. You've got to love both. You see, a part of our sin, friends, is that we've neglected to see God's image in others. Those who don't believe like us, those who don't look like us, those who don't think like us, those who don't behave like us, it becomes the besetting sin. And it's a part of why we find ourselves today like those dogs in the video whenever we create screens or walls or barriers or gates, we can't see as well. And we can't see God's image. And we can't see God's desire. And we get a little tense. Now, those are sort of the meta themes from Cain and Abel, and they're very important to remind us, right, that we need to see God's image and that somehow our sin is right there before us. But there's some other things that make it so very practical to our lives today. And why I love these stories in Genesis, because some 4,000 years later, they are still true and they are still relevant to how we live our lives. Not only are we made in God's image, and is everyone else. But we struggle with believing that and living God's desire for that. Let's look just a little more closely at Cain and Abel. It's 
fascinating in Genesis um, throughout. We get what are known as etiologies. Etiologies are kind of, again, further ways to say, hey, this is how we came to be the way we are. This is why we are the way we are. And so often etiologies live themselves out in people's names. You know, your name means something, right? I mean, my hunch is every last one of us has discovered our name means X, right? And sometimes our family told us that. Sometimes we looked it up. Sometimes we kind of discovered it. Now, there might be a made-up name that doesn't have any real value, but you don't need to own up to that. We'll just, you know, we'll just pretend your name has meaning and value, right? But the names in the Scriptures always do. And almost without exception, every name in Scripture, particularly in Genesis, is described. It'll say uh, so-and-so and and word's name because of, and then it'll go on to describe. Same way with Cain. It says right off the bat, she had her son Cain, and he was so named because she thought, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord, right? We get an etiology for Noah. We get an etiology for Abraham, for Sarah, for all of the folks. And the etiology for Cain is related to this, I've I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. Because that verb produce in the Hebrew, it sounds just like the name Cain. And so we might literally say that Cain kind of equates to producing or, or, or acquiring, right? But notice the very next sentence says, and she had a second son or she had her son Abel. And then there's no description. There's no etiology. There's no way to understand who he is. And it has relation to not seeing the image. And it has relation to what happens to him. The name Abel actually means vapor or like nothingness. It means like it, it sort of goes away, kind of like Abel. He, he just goes away, doesn't he? His brother just kills him. He has no heritage. He has no uh, sort of lineage, if you will. He, he just becomes a vapor. And so it begins to speak into how is it that I can't see the one who is like a vapor, the one who just kind of leaves us. And it begins to tell the story this way. Notice that what um, sort of gets at the agitation for Cain is the offering. This likewise is not only the first passage that talks about sin, it's the first passage that talks about an offering. These guys are going to bring an offering to God. And as they bring an offering to God, um, they bring two different things. You take note, right? One is grain, that's Cain, and and one is an animal, that's Abel. And and we think to ourselves, okay, well, God looks favorably upon Abel, so it must be that God likes animals better, right? And God has sort of um, already cursed the ground from from, uh, Daddy, from Adam. But it's fascinating. It's not really so much what they bring that causes the problem, but it's the way in which they bring it. You see, this is a perennial issue for all of us as well. It's not what we bring that causes God either uh, delight or disgust. It's rather our attitude and our understanding of what we're bringing. Listen to the author of Hebrews as he describes what Abel brings. You may know in Hebrews, the the 11th chapter gives us a great litany of all the people of faith that kind of helps set us up for Jesus. And in chapter 11, verse 4, it says this, by an act of faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice to God than Cain. It was what he believed, not what he brought, that made the difference. So what did he believe? Well, in part, he believed um, that he needed to make an offering to God. And that's made known in the way in which he brings what it is that he brings. You remember how it was described what Cain brought? Cain just brought something out of the field. I've got some grain. I noticed some there, God, and and I think it probably is a good thing that I give you something, so let me just grab up some grain and let me give it to you. You know, almost like, uh, okay, 
in passing, I think I'll do this. You know, maybe it can work, maybe it has benefit. But Abel's offering was very different. It's not only an animal, it's the oldest of his flock. It's the best. That was the thought. The thought was if it's the oldest, if it's the, if it's the best and the first, it, it must be. And then not only was it the first, not only was it the best, but he gives the, the fat portions. And you know, in modern day world, we don't think much about the fat portion because we're, you know, we're told that's not good for us. But man, when you cook a steak out on the grill, what is it that makes it smell so good? It's that fat, isn't it? Ooh, I can smell it right now. I hope you're not hungry. But that fat portion is, is the best portion to have a fragrant aroma up to God. And so Abel has thought this through. Abel has committed himself. Abel has thought about every component of this offering. So he's going to give the very best that he can give. It's about what he believes, not so much what he offers. And that becomes the distinction because God thinks to God's self, Man, this is cool. This guy has put thought and energy and effort and, and wants to make an offering that is pleasing to God. And that's what causes Cain to get upset. He's the oldest. He ought to be more favored, right? But Abel seems to be more favored by God, and the youngest should never be more favored. And so Cain gets upset with God. He becomes very angry at God because God has chosen Abel over him and God wants his offering over his. And Cain is so beside himself, he can't stand it. But his anger at God is cast off on Abel. Man, hadn't that happened to you before? I know it's happened to me. I get angry at God because something has gone wrong. A relationship has disintegrated or I've lost my job or somebody I love dearly has died or um, things are not going as I'd hoped and dreamed or um, I'm caught in addiction and I'm angry at God. But I struggle with what I'm supposed to do with my anger towards God. And so the next best thing is to just get angry at somebody else, right? I can... I can point my anger at my sibling or, or my spouse or my work colleague or my kid or my neighbor. It's real easy to do that, and that's what Cain does. He turns his anger at God right on the image of God in his brother because it's so much easier to do that, isn't it? It's so much easier to deny God's image than to deny God, and that's what Cain was doing. And isn't that like me? You see, it's so relevant. It's so pertinent to who we are. And what's fascinating about that anger, because remember, there's nothing innately wrong with anger. It is normal and natural to get angry. It's when it takes a turn. It's when it goes over the top, right? But did you know that anger is, it's not a primary emotion, it's not like the thing right there. Do you know the primary emotion behind anger is fear? I'm fearful. I'm fearful of you, or I'm fearful of what you may think of me, or I'm fearful of what you may do to me, or I'm fearful of how this might look. And my, my fear turns into anger because I don't know what to do with my fear. I, I don't know what, what, 
why do I feel this way? And how am I supposed to express this? And how's this supposed to take shape? And so my fear turns from fear to anger. And it causes me to lash out. And it causes me to stop fully seeing the image of God before me. John, in his letters, had a powerful word about this. He would say in 1 John chapter 4, quite literally, that there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear is about punishment, right? And those of us who still sort of exist in our fear, John would say, is we've not yet quite been perfected in love. We're, we're not quite resonating with God's love. We're not quite demonstrating God's love because the fear has taken hold. And there are lots of people that we're fearful of because they are not like us. You can put all kinds of names, you can put all kinds of nomers. Every one of us is fearful of somebody who's not like us. A Muslim, a Jew, someone who's black, someone who's Hispanic, a woman, someone who lives in that neighborhood. You just fill in the blank. And it's shaming to, to, to do this, isn't it? it? It's shaming to realize this is true, but it's true. I'm afraid of certain people. And therefore, I, I struggle with seeing the image of God in those people. Cain teaches us a lot about ourselves. He reminds us that we need help. And that our sin is ever before us. Because one of the things that Cain teaches us is, is that sin is not always an action. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. But sin is often an attitude and a thought and a perception. Because I've neglected to see the image of God in an image bearer of God. And notice the final irony for Cain. God says, you're going to be cast out. You're going to become a wanderer. This is a bad thing. The blood of your brother is coming up and calling out to me, right? It's horrible. And God says, I'm going to push you out. And you're going to know the error of your ways and you're going to understand how wrong this is. And the murderer responds, this is too much, God. I might be killed. And once again, I see my own sin and what Cain says because how often have I said, I, I want an exception. I want to not suffer the wrath or judgment. Surely you will think better of me. Man, I hate it when Scripture points at me and suggests that I'm wrong. But it does, doesn't it? And notice, in the midst of Cain's plea, God puts a mark on him. And that mark has resided on every last one of us ever since. Every last one of us. It is a mark of both guilt and, thank God, grace. It is a mark of guilt to acknowledge, I've done something wrong. I am a sinner. I have not 
seen nor met the mark that God calls me to. I am marked by guilt. And at the same time, it is a mark of grace that says, no one will kill you. I have marked you and identified you as an image of me, says God. And every last one of us still has this mark of both guilt and grace. And I'm so grateful. Because in the midst of my own sin and in the midst of our collective sin of not seeing the image of God in others, we need God's grace. We need the redemption of Christ. We need His good news, right? So what does this all teach us? I mean, what, are, what, what is Cain's anger and vitriol and losing the mark and not seeing the image of God mean for us? I think there are some basic straightforward lessons. One is very simple. Let's remember this. Let's remember that everyone is made in the image of God. Everybody. Whether I agree with them or not, whether I appreciate their stance or not, whether I approve of them or not, everyone is made in the image of God. God's Word teaches that over and over again. Everyone is made in the image of God. Let's remember that. Number two, let's, ref let's um, uh, remind ourselves <laughs> that we're all tarnished by sin, every last one of us. We don't have to waller in that. We don't have to remain there. But what we do need to do is, is remind ourselves that that's true. And if that's true, by golly, that person that I disagree with or that person who is not like me, man, maybe I could better see the image of God in them. Number three, I think what Cain teaches us and certainly what Abel helps us to know is that we can rely on the redeeming love of Jesus, and we must. That redeeming love of Jesus helps bring us closer to what God desires, and Jesus is the one who can make that true. I love the way John put it again in his first letter in the third chapter. He just identified in verse 16 that we ought to, um, the reason Jesus has covered us and the way we know that we are loved and that that love is real is because Jesus died for us and that we therefore are then called to sort of lay our lives out as well as a redemption, as a way of acknowledging we needed that and I want to offer that now to the world. Let's, let's rely on that gift. And then finally, I think, man, let's just reflect this image of God. Let's just reflect this true love of God that makes all the difference in the world. It came on us in our creation. Now let's reflect it back to the world so that the world can experience it and know that there's great value in it. John would say in that same letter, just a couple of verses later, quite literally, dear children, let's not love in simply words, but let's let the truth of our actions demonstrate God's love. Let's see and let's act on the image that we witness, that we might know in all creation that God's image is there and that we can then, therefore, not miss the mark, but rather claim God's redemption for all of creation. Thanks be to God that that's still true. Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, what a powerful gift you offer to us in your son Jesus. 
He is the very image of who you are, and he has claimed for us that same image, God. So help us not so much to live in the ways of Cain, but rather to claim your redemption in Christ. Help us, God, to see your image in all and to offer respect and honor and to understand that we don't have to always agree or even approve, but we do have to honor and respect. Thank you, God, that you call us to this and that you provide a way for it to take shape. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of the one, Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen.